Hello, good day everyone, and welcome to my podcast. It's a new podcast entitled From the Jaws of the Lion. My name is Robert, and I will be your host from here on in. And this new podcast, this new venture, adventure of mine, from here on in will focus on healing and overcoming illness, and specifically for me, for my situation, the overcoming of ulcerative colitis, a disease that affects uh, a small majority of young people I have discovered over the years. It is a disease that encompasses inflammation, inflammation of the colon and the digestive tract. And this podcast will detail some of the healing methods by which I overcame this illness. It will also encompass other aspects of the metaphysical, the spiritual, psychological, the emotional, mental, and everything else that may have an impact on our lives on the healing journey. And perhaps a few bagatelles here and there might come into my podcast, we'll see. All under the canvas of good times and exploration. I think it sounds fair enough. As to the title, From the Jaws of the Lion, hmm, sounds slightly biblical. Maybe, perhaps, truth be told, I will not be divulging too much at the onset. You'll just have to trust me and that this name will be explained soon enough. But I figure good mysteries, like a good magic show, much like any good story, one needs to sit back, enjoy the ride, and then have faith. Somewhere along the line, things will miraculously work out. So grab some popcorn, maybe some chips, if you're so inclined, bottle of beer, glass of wine. Just sit back, relax. It'll be all explained in due time. But I'd like to get a little bit about myself now. I was born and raised in St. Catharines, Ontario. St. Catharines is a blue-collar burg on the shores of Lake Ontario, the southern shores. Opposite St. Catharines, one can see the great, I would not say majestic, skyline of Toronto, more of the hazy, smoggy skyline of Toronto. My parents, uh, I would have to say, were a mismatched couple in many ways. Where my father was quiet, stoic, basically the Protestant work ethic man, married to the company, loving his overtime, going from work and back home again. And even away from work, he would still talk about work. It was his life, his credo, his addiction in many ways. He never really took a lot of vacations. Work for him was the be-all and end-all. And as a millwright at General Motors, it afforded him some creative opportunities to do different tasks every day. My father once told me that every day was, uh, was an interesting experience, meeting new people, getting along with his buddies, of course. My dad loved and lived work. It was, in many ways, his greater family beyond his own family with my mother, brother, and I. As to my mother, she was the homemaker. She stayed home, and as a homemaker, she made our life, I would have to say, very hospitable in a great way. She was the artist, and she remains the artist. And back then... She took up folk painting following her own life-changing illness back in the late 80s. And following this illness, she became much more herself. My father, I would have to say, from the time he began work to the time he retired, remained pretty much in his cozy cocoon of going about his day. He started to learn the guitar when he was in his early 40s. But my father stayed on the steady, whereas my mom, it was about evolving for her. Both parents, I should mention, were are the youngest of several children. My father, the youngest of six. My mother, the youngest of five. My father came from Amsterdam, the Netherlands, and immigrated to Canada in 1957. 
whereas my mom, her, her parents were of Russian Slavic extraction. My nana coming from the prairies, a Ukrainian family, whereas my grandfather, there are mixed stories. Some think he came from Russia, others from Romania. I'm never quite sure how the story goes. But my mom's childhood was quite rough, and she had to live under this sort of veil of constant fear. Being the youngest of five, she managed to avoid the worst abuses. And it was only after my grandfather passed on did my uh, my aunts and uncles discover my grandfather was a closet alcoholic, so go figure. But this meant for my mother there was never really a sense of home. Home for her was difficult, always under this constant fear of what would happen next. Thankfully, my, my nana, my grandmother, separated and eventually divorced from her abusive husband. Yet, like most people, you go back to what you know. So even if she had left the relationship, she had not left the paradigm behind. And the next onslaught of boyfriends pretty much resembled my grandfather, whether alcoholic, abusive, or combinations thereof. And my mother, at the age of 16, had to hightail it out of St. Catharines. She went from Toronto to Vancouver to the Northwest Territories and all around the West Coast before returning back to St. Catharines. The reason she was on these wandering, wayward journeys is that, again, home was elusive. And she would only find home in the late 90s when she would meet up with my stepfather and re relocate to the West Coast once more. And like my mother, I have been quite a wanderer in my life. I've always felt closer to my mother. I felt I could always talk to her and still feel I can talk to her. Whereas my father, we both guard our emotions, and he will acknowledge this. Recently, his best friend of 30 years passed on. And the week after the funeral, when I talked with him on Skype, not a word was mentioned of the funeral or what he was going through. Simply put, my father clamps things down and keeps on trucking. As a child, though, I would say I, I found my father difficult to, to really relate to. You see, my dad was the youngest of six, and when he was very young, being the youngest of six and his older siblings getting married, having kids, he was the go-to babysitter when he had to look over, look after nieces and nephews that were in babyhood. So as a baby, I had the best father in the world, I would say. He, he was, as my mom described, he was absolutely the best. He adapted to being a father right away, and infants seemed to be his expertise. One story I always think about, my father once told me I was infatuated with the light. Taken home first from the hospital, I was said to be absolutely smitten with the radiance coming out from the lone bulb in the rec room. And he said I would spend helpless and countless hours staring at light bulbs everywhere. Maybe this was a reminiscence of the heavenly world I left behind. <laughs> Who knows? But regarding my infancy, my babyhood, I would say I was probably more prone to melancholy. And if I'm going to be a little bit more honest, I was prone to self-destruction. You could call me a suicide baby, if you will. Perhaps that infatuation with the light was actually covering up a deeper, darker aspect of my infancy as I was prone to self-destruction. And my self-destruction was a little bit on the creative side. For instance, my learning to crawl was a complete surprise to my parents. It happened without them even having an iota of what I was capable of. For instance, one afternoon my father was grabbing a beer from the kitchen was passing me by. He saw me there in the living room, lying there, placid and gentle and cooing, lying on my blanket, and he waved a friendly hello to me. 
to his infant son before heading downstairs to catch his football match on the TV. The story goes, I pursued him, turning myself over like a covert spy on an episode of Mission Impossible, eyes wide and determined. I went like a frantic little fiend, crawling off the blanket and towards the top of the unfenced stairs, and according to my parents, I threw myself over the edge. I'll be honest, being a suicide baby probably was not the best practical way to endear myself to my parents. I landed with a crash-bang-boom, according to my father, and to this day I still have a slight bump in the back of my head. But if you look at pictures of me as a child, if you see a picture of me, one specifically that hangs in my father's house, one he loves, I find my eyes are the saddest blue, and I'm not kidding. I was the Vincent van Gogh of infants. Get me out of here, those portraits said. Put a bullet in me. I want off this carnival ride. And as it turned out, even if that fall didn't kill me, I was still looking for an exit. Baby Chris, as my first name is Christian, was still on the lookout for a means to leave this earthly plane. I was dedicated. Once I learned to crawl, something else would catch my eye. It also looked dangerous. It also looked like it would help me out on my mission. I was on the hunt for wall sockets, something to stick my stubby, sensitive fingers into. They looked like exit points to me. God, Freud, you would probably have a field day discussing my childhood. But I needed those sockets, and my parents were on the lookout. I mean, they had set up the fence in front of the stairs. Now they had to set up little plug-ins for those sockets. So once again, I was foiled, this time by my parents. Now I'm going to tell an embarrassing story, one that would embarrass my parents, but probably one that has to be mentioned, especially in a podcast where I'll be talking about things as unsavory and miserable as the human digestive tract and its moments of unease. Apparently when I was a baby, I had this anal fissure, and being unable to evacuate my bowels, I was constipated. So I was taken to the doctor. A medicine was prescribed, basically a, a, su- a stool softener. And as my mom tells it, the next time I really had to go, it was machine gun fire. Apparently she was holding up a diaper to deflect the rapid fire that came out of me. So this gives you some instance in which there were early warning signs of the colitis that would eventually thwart my early 20s. And to a certain extent the lingering effects in my late 20s and early 30s. Beyond being a a suicide baby, I think my childhood was fairly normal. Beyond being a sensitive kid, I think around the age of five or six, things started to even out. I started to feel more at home in my life. I liked the people at school. They were okay. Everyone seemed to get along. I loved my paternal grandparents. My father, again, being Dutch, my fondest memories of growing up were on Thursdays, sometimes Wednesday evenings, when we would go around the corner and visit them. We lived not too far away. I cherished going with my father to see his parents and listening to the Dutch language, this going back and forth, My opa was once Humphrey Bogart in his life. Basically, that's what I would call him as a sailor. He was suave, had this sort of cigar-smoking aura about him with these bogey, brooding brows, and this really deep, chilled voice, and a love of everything from 
Dirty Jokes, The Price is Right, Wheel of Fortune, and Cryptic Crosswords. And if anyone has never heard of a cryptic crossword, cryptic crosswords are basically puzzles within themselves. Each clue is a word puzzle in and of itself. And you have to assemble the puzzle as you go along. And my opa doing it in Dutch, that was one of his favorite pastimes. I love the fact that he was into jigsaw puzzles as well. His kitchen table was always filled with the latest one showing a scene on the Rhine River or a, a Van Roysdale painting, crosswords, puzzles. He also had, again, a sense of humor, a dirty sense of humor. And he had it until the day he died in 1997. I'll give you an example of his joking self while in the hospital, dying of leukemia. His two sons, namely my father and Uncle John, were visiting. And my opa, in a moment of whimsical glee, again, he was passing on slowly but surely, but he was still very curious about the world and inspired by it. And he looked to his neighbor, who was then pulling himself up, using one of those triangle things that dangle from the ceiling in hospital rooms. Feeling mischievous, my opa told his two sons, nodding his head to the neighbor, and in Dutch said, Look, he's going to do a backflip. So that gives you an idea of my opa. As for my oma, she was agoraphobic. She was quieter, a little bit more soft-spoken, though she could hold the reins in her own way. From her time in Amsterdam to Canada, she really had this fear of doing anything on her own, and she needed company every time she left the house. Anything as simple and mundane as going to the doctor, for instance. She needed someone to be there holding her hand. She never got a driver's license. And when my opa passed in 1997, her soul essentially went with him. For 10 years, she lived in a cocoon of... Just mental debilitation, not really seeking out her own world around her, but rather seeking out the past and not being able to recognize people in the present. But getting back to my childhood, I I have to say I was a bit of a geek, a dork. Like most kids that they need glasses at an early age, I, I was teased. Four eyes back then was your, your basic slur against any kid that required corrective lenses. But thankfully, around the time when I was in my early adolescence, I was allowed to have contact lenses. And this formerly shy boy who kept to himself felt nervous around girls at the age of 12 to the age of 14. He became a little bit of a playboy, a pubescent cad. What was great about that time is I had a new friend in the neighborhood. Rather, it was an old friend I just never really noticed. A friend of mine down the street, Catholic, pretty in her own way, of course, she was friends with a whole bevy of lovely ladies, and I think I discovered back then my preference for the Slavic, the Slavic in women, the high cheekbones, the wide eyes. My neighborhood basically was a mix of Polish, Ukrainian, Italian families. And everywhere I looked, with the help of this friend of mine, all the girls seemed beautiful. It would be a time where I was the most social I'd ever been in my teens, even before that. Those two years from 12 to 14 were generally fun, and I look back at them with rose-tinted glasses, with a sense of awe and wonder and longing to reclaim not so much that very time, but the feeling for that time. There's something about adolescence, especially when you're starting to discover yourself, where there's just this mundane magic about life, and especially when you're coming into your own. And that's how it felt being around this friend of mine and her bevy of attractive girlfriends. But where are the snows of yesteryear, right? I had a falling out with the girl, and as it would be, my access to all the pretty ladies fell by the wayside. 
In many ways, I think I punished myself for not enjoying the present following those two years. In some ways, I held up this pedestal of the past, those two years being this iconic, wondrous, this this time that could not compete with any other time. And by holding up on this pedestal, I evaded enjoying other future moments. I evaded enjoying much of my adolescence, which enjoying your adolescence sounds like about as much fun as enjoying an enema, which I think I can attest to. It's neither are fun. And I have experience of both. I don't know how many listeners have experience of the E word, the enema. So when it came to high school, I think I entered that latter time of my youth with a kind of misanthropic bitterness. The baby suicide before became this surly, antisocial, arrogant, pompous. You can probably add further, further angered adjectives to what my adolescence was. And it's not pretty. In high school, I was a typical loner. I hated the whole experience. Puberty was bad enough and being forced to endure it within a building filled with people, much like yourself, going through all the uncomfortable ins and outs of your body, going through changes. That whole confusing ordeal is no Joe ride, and when it's a shared ride, well, you best want to avoid people infected with getting older and getting getting into their early adulthood. I attended a dramatic high school, and I figured, well, being attracted to the arts, I would find some respite there, or some respite, I should say, not respite. But no, no paradise, no halcyon days for me. It was during that bland and less than enthusiastic ordeal called high school that my parents finally separated. Being mismatched, they could not stay matched for long. And I think I handled it with a a stoic grace, or I'd like to think so. Really, it was me just once again putting another guard upon a guard of a wall around another wall when it came to my emotions. I shrugged it off, let my parents air their grievances in front of me as they complained about each other, and figured, that's how things go. I deserve to be their friend as opposed to being their son, who was himself going through a hard time, but I simply didn't want to let others know. And this is an interesting aspect. I feel, I wouldn't really say it was a warning sign or a symptom of the colitis to come, but it is telling of my character. I believe in many ways people who suffer from digestive illness it has to do with repression. And I was learning the early sta- in my early stages of life, I was learning about how to be repressive with myself. I wasn't learning how to be vocal, to speak my truth, many things I would have to learn and educate myself on years later during my healing process. So being a teenager, being surly, being quiet, even before that, not airing myself, not allowing myself to have a voice, these were all preludes to becoming sick. And being around my father, I was more reticent. I was more withdrawn. I simply allowed him to say the horrid things about my mother, and to this day I regret it. Because I didn't really know my father, again, he was best with babies. And when I became a toddler and when I grew up and learned how to speak, he seemed to have less interest in me. So when my parents separated, I chose, like my brother, to live with him. And on Tuesdays, or sometimes Mondays, depending on the schedule, depending on the week, we would take the drive out to the south side of St. Catharines to have our guitar lessons. Me first, him second. And on those drives, he would air and express his grievances. And it was always about women. Women being this negative beast, this alternative human being that my father couldn't 
believe he had actually lived with. He regarded my mother with absolute disdain. He complained of her having been the type to stay home and not work. Basically, his blue-collar buddies were filling him up with all these ideas about what a woman was supposed to be. And fine, his friends were his go-to, his line of support. And I figured in many ways I could be there to support him. But it was not doing me any good. Perhaps it was in my babyhood that really I had gone through my adolescent years, my suicidal urges I expressed when I was only three or four weeks old. But my teen years, no, there's no drinking, no party. In fact, I was embarrassed for my peers. I remember feeling this shame when I saw them stooping to the cliches that their culture is known for, drinking, indulging in drugs. I remember being at a party, and one girl, I think, had a little bit of alcohol poisoning. She was pale, her lips were purple, and I kept thinking, why are you doing this to yourself? You look like a moron, and you're suffering for it. Thankfully, high school was only a couple of years, and I actually graduated early. Instead of doing my OAC, which was then the grade 13 in Ontario, I graduated early, moved out west, and lived with my mother and her new mate. And it wasn't the best of times, though I wouldn't say it was the worst of times either. We got along pretty good as far as couples go, or I should say trios go. Me being the newcomer and my mother and stepfather still trying to figure out the relationship. I worked for a bookstore in downtown Vancouver, corporate bookstore, where I learned the invaluable lesson of how expendable people are in the corporate world. It was a nice little wake-up call. But working for the bookstore afforded me a lovely discount, which I still look back with awe and glee at. I still love books. And as for my colleagues, there was, again, a bevy of great people around me, all of them book lovers. And there were lovely girls I worked with, and yet... This animosity I had for my adolescence, it continued on even into my late teens. And I still held up the past on this pedestal. And when I look back at that time from the ages of 18, 19, nearing 20, I had so many opportunities to be with people, to talk with them, to get to know them. And yet I insulated myself. And this insulation was a kind of social repression I put myself through course not healthy in many ways again I would say is a prelude to the ulcerative colitis I simply wasn't happy and the people I chose to be around the Pope this one girl especially I was infatuated with in many ways she mirrored or reflected my anger and stoicism my sort of depleted love for the world and after two years of being out west I moved back to Ontario and this is where things start to go awry. This is where the preludes start to turn into the warning signs. Even though on and off again during my adolescence, I would experience digestive discomfort, which I would probably pass off as saying, oh, I was lactose intolerant for a few months here. Oh, I ate the wrong thing. Oh, the banana cream pie. Oh, the banana. But here, living away from my mother and stepfather, now living with my brother and father, it became unpleasant early on. While I had a decent bedroom during the time I lived with them before my move out, again, this move was 1997, when I returned in December 1999, just shy of the millennium, I was relegated to the guest bedroom in our house. And I took it. I didn't protest. I took it, and I figured I deserved it, this ganging up on me. My father played the good father, the easygoing guy, the hell fellow well met, the buddy, but he condoned my brother's belligerent behavior. My brother, being younger, was always much more temperamental. He took after my mother in this, even though my mother over the years was able to curb her temperament 
to find a better way to express her anger, to be much more like my stepfather, logical, pragmatic. My brother never had a person in his life. Maybe he doesn't now. I don't know. We're estranged, my brother and I. But he never had that ability to overhear himself. And my brother was basically the god of war in that household. He racked up phone bills in the triple and quadruple digits. He would throw parties and run amok. And there was this animosity about about him. And it still comes to this day. My mother put it best is that my brother kills love. And I would I would agree with that. Because during those years, between 2000 and 2003, the years when I started to get sick and the years when I was sick, being around my brother was a f- kind of torture, a spiritual torture, I would say. I mean, not to say it was all bad. There were some comical moments when we had our fights. For one, On one occasion, I was supposed to drive him to work, and at that time, my father only had the one car. My brother needed to get to work. We had an argument. He somehow locked me out of the house by throwing my pillow out the door. I went to go grab it. Ten minutes later, he came rushing out of the house, ready to go to work. He had the car keys. He got in the car, but he wouldn't open my side of the door, the passenger side. Thinking he wouldn't drive away with me on the hood, I jumped on the hood. Makes sense. I didn't figure he would put the car in reverse, but he did. He backed out of the driveway. Next thing, I was going to be surprised by the fact that, yes... He was going to drive with me on the hood, going down the street at 60 kilometers per hour. I still wonder what the neighbors had to think of that, if they'd been looking out their window, looking up from their tea or afternoon coffee and biscuits. And Oh, there goes the Bruce boys. Anyway, I held on for dear life, and we got to the corner. I peeled off. He peeled off after I basically peeled myself off the hood. When my father got home and I related this incident, he just simply laughed. He didn't even consider the fact that I could have been injured or hurt. He also said he still needed to go grocery shopping. He had just come back from, from work. He had walked home. So I took the walk to my brother's work, picked up, the, picked up the car, having my father's car keys, and went back home. I was supposed to pick up my brother that evening. I declined for obvious reasons. Many days later, I noticed one of my books went missing. And I assumed because this was nineteen two sorry, I should say this was two thousand, I had moved. Perhaps I'd left one of my books behind in British Columbia. Another fight occurred a few weeks after I discovered this missing book, and my brother alluded to the fact that maybe the book went missing because I had declined to pick my brother up. He gave me a look, my brother, as if to say, Don't ever do that to me again. Of course, when I mentioned this to my father, my father being the hell fellow well met, the nice guy simply said, oh, that's between you and your brother. You guys handle it. Basically like telling the prisoners, yeah, you guys can help each other, and any prison fights, you work it out amongst yourselves. So the repression, the frustration I was going through, I will stipulate that I believe that colitis, and I will say this probably in other podcasts, that the colitis, the ulcerative colitis, was a result of a myriad of factors, and that there will be not one factor, I would say, is the be-all, end-all, the very catalyst, the catalyst that started it all, because as far as I'm concerned, as a human being, we're a myriad of moments, myriad of memories, myriad of many things that are coming together, coalescing, creating us as a self, as a human being. So actually just try to point out one strand amongst the many and saying, ah, that's what started it all. No. But it's understood 
that that frustration, that repression I was going through, it was the warning sign emotionally because in 2002, after a few months of depression, I experienced these first gastric problems. Started with a seafood salad. I mean, I could say that was the catalyst. I could say that, yes, there was a bacteria involved, a bacterial infection. I had some gas, some discomfort. When I discovered the name of the bacteria, namely C. difficile, I contacted the region's health unit, explaining that this is what happened. I went to this restaurant. The health unit, the man there on the phone, said this bacteria was common amongst senior residences, which I found interesting, and for people who have been in the hospital. The infection, once eradicated by a phalanx of difficult-to-pronounce antibiotics, these symptoms did not go away. In fact, they had worsened from diarrhea to bloody diarrhea, and I landed in the hospital in 2002. And at that time, my specialist was, let us say, very, very incapable of expressing himself, or he was not inclined to. When I was in the hospital, I was given liquid prednisone. I was handed two prescriptions upon my discharge and told by him, see you in November. Till then, take these pills. Thanks for the advice. Bye-bye. But if I had taken doctor's orders, well... Either I wouldn't be living or I wouldn't be making a podcast like this. And as you will discover, listener, I was resilient because when push comes to shove, you eventually have to move in the direction that life is going to take you to be your better and whole self. And I proved to be, maybe because I wasn't with my family, more difficult as a patient. I was not an ideal patient, even though I've been trying for the longest time to be the ideal and golden son the ideal and best good older brother. Being the ideal patient felt like an insult to my way of life. So by going ahead and going off the medicine in 2002, I was preparing myself for the life before me, a life that I would have to take on self-responsibility, a life where I would have to investigate the causes, the inner workings of my self-psyche, spirit, to find the underlying factors, undo the knot, the web of why I was going through such horrid times, trying to understand the emotional, the psychological, and the spiritual. And this is what my focus will be from here on in. Suffice it to say, it has been a long and sometimes torturous journey going from 2002 to 2021. I've learned a lot, and I wish I'd learned a lot quicker sometimes. I will say that from 2002 to 2005, those were the hardest years. They, those were my bouts of hell. From 2006 to 2009, I was finding a balance in my body, patiently working away at healing. By 2010 to 2012, I started to find that equilibrium. And even if I couldn't fully grasp it, I was at least headed in the right direction. And that direction included Europe. I had a chance to see the continent I'd been dreaming of going to for some time. In 2012, I visited my father's birth city of Amsterdam and for four months made my way through the Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, and Spain before returning to Leipzig and telling myself while staying there for one resting month, I love this East German city. When I returned to Canada, it was my intention to come back to Leipzig. So in 2014, after an illness that actually was much like the 2002 bacteria infection, I had to change my life and I changed it for the better. I made the momentous decision to learn how to become an English trainer. And as luck would have it, I returned to Leipzig in September. 
Actually, my anniversary of my first coming back here will be in a few days now. So I hope this gives you some semblance of who I am. As I said, I currently live in Leipzig, live in Plagwitz. I play piano, I play guitar, I read, I write a lot, read a lot too. And I will say that more facts will come along as I explore these issues. Ulcerative colitis to me is not a chronic illness. It's a chronic mindset. It's a chronic repression of the mind and soul. The last pill I took for the illness was in 2004. The illness, in many ways, had to be opened up, and those pills were closing me down, keeping me from not seeing myself. So from here on in, I'm not going to be prescribing diets. I'm not going to be giving you a laundry list of supplements you should take because I don't know about those things, and they never really helped me. What I'm going to talk about is the things that have helped me. Again, no cookbook here, but rather just a new way of approaching things, a questioning. The famous uh, German poet Rilke said we must live the questions, and I believe that is probably the best way to approach our lives. If we don't live the questions, how can we ever expect to find the unexpected answers? So I don't ascribe to a putative diet, supplements, or anything else other than subscribing to the idea that we need to open up ourselves, or at least consciously, as much as we can. Because I don't want to limit myself in terms of food. For instance, I love wine and beer, and on some occasions, Russian vodka. And I don't regret it. I don't regret all the good things I've eaten in the past couple of days. Living in the land of pork, I would say, give me your verst. Bad joke, I know. But time will reveal everything, and so far I've managed to have a near-normal life. In fact, when I think back at the hospitals, they never ever helped me, and I don't think they ever could. So I bid you all welcome, and the following podcasts I will be recovering, covering topics such as Chinese medicine, emotions, anger, compassion, Christianity, past life aggression, which you might not think would mix with Christianity, you'd be surprised. I'll be speaking about forgiveness as a healing tool, how people use their illness, I know I did, to protect themselves from improving their life, and why people refuse to heal and the lingering aspects of my trauma and the lingering emotions and memories of those evil doctors I dealt with. And of course, I will be exploring more family dynamics as well as the aspects of the animus and the anima in the Jungian sense, the female aspect of the male body and soul and the female who has the male within them. So I'm looking forward to this and I thank you very much and I will play the rest of my little piano tune as we close out. So thank you very much. This has been Robert from Jaws of the Lion. Wish you all a great day. All the best. <laughs>